you for joining Life Builders Church in Rangbar. We pray that this message encourages and inspires you. John 12, verses 23 to 28. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So I read, <laughs> I read these verses several times over and then I concluded that I really didn't know much about wheat. <laughs> Not very spiritual, but it's about wheat, right? So, and I don't know anything about wheat, and so I thought I would research that. So for those of you that are not familiar with wheat, we're going to have a short lesson on wheat. Okay? That's, this microphone thing's annoying me. There we go. So, yeah, there we go. The wheat plant on the left-hand side of the slide has four stalks, or heads they're called. And the picture on the right-hand side is a single head of wheat, but closer up, obviously. And you can see some of the grains have fallen out. The chaff is the leaf-like parts lying next to the grains there. The chaff is the part that holds the grain while the wheat grows. The grains of wheat are what is harvested to produce food or to replant in future crops. And to put more wheat info into your heads, bran, if you like eating that stuff, is the shell of the wheat grain itself. That's what bran is. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew that? I didn't know that. And there are different types of wheat. There's not just wheat. There's hard wheat and soft wheat and there's different coloured wheat and there's all sorts of weird wonderful names for different things. And depending on the type of the wheat, it might be used in making pasta if it's hard or if it's soft, it might be used in making some pastry goodies. Does anyone have any idea that that goes on with wheat? That's amazing. One 27 kilogram bushel of wheat provides about 19 kilograms of flour which is 60 to 73 loaves of bread, depending on the size of the loaf and what kind of bread it is. Or you can make 19 kilograms of pasta. That's a lot of pasta, really. And assuming you would eat a sandwich for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day, it would take you 168 days to eat an amount of bread produced from one bushel of wheat. 168 days, sandwiches for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Okay. A modern combine harvester can harvest 1,000 bushels in an hour. You should read the stats on how much wheat is produced a year in the world. It is ridiculous. They, it's the most primary food source for most of the world. There's a lot of wheat that gets harvested all year round. A family of four could live for about two years off the bread produced by one acre of wheat if you like bread. <laughs> if you don't, you're in trouble. And now we get to the facts that I actually started researching for, hoping to find. On average, one head of wheat, like on the slide here, has 22 grains on average. And an average wheat plant has five heads, which makes for 110 seeds per plant on average. 
That's pretty easy maths, right? 22 times 5, that adds up. What's even easier is the maths that if you don't plant the wheat seed, if the single seed is never planted, then no seed equals no plant, which in turn equals no more seeds. There is no growth, there's no yield. And so after a lesson on wheat, that's the end of that little lesson, I'll give you a pop quiz later. <laughs> we return to the verses from John 12 that we read before. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't mean that if one grain of wheat dies, then on average, ten more seeds will grow. I don't think he meant that. I don't think it was a trivia lesson for those around. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't aiming his words at the wheat farmers of the day trying to work out their crop yield estimates for their next crop. Most of us have probably never ever considered how much wheat can grow from one grain of wheat. We don't seem to ever consider the yield that comes from that one death, the death of one tiny seed. And I suppose it's a bit of an unknown, isn't it? When Jesus says, bears much fruit, what does that mean? What is much? And if I asked you what stands out to you in that verse, if I go back to it, if I asked you what stands out in that verse, what you're drawn to, I think more often than not, people would think about the dying part, the death part unless the grain falls to the earth and dies. That's what seems to capture us for some reason. And if you've never heard this verse before, it's not only about the, the wheat. Jesus was referring to himself in this verse. He came to earth, he died, and he rose again, just like a seed of wheat, so that there would be much fruit. The fruit of souls, saved souls, people set free from guilt and shame people freed from sin and filled with peace and joy, people who have eternal life in him. But the verse is also about us, isn't it? We have to die to ourselves as well so that we can bear fruit through our, uh, through our obedience to Christ. But we kind of get stuck on this dying side of the fence. And just to be clear, we're not talking about physical death here. Death to yourself means dying to denying yourself. It means saying no to what your earthly body and heart and mind and soul kind of want, what you desire here on this earth. And then you do only what God wants. Let's move along here. How many of us think to ourselves, all I have to do is deny my earthly self and do what God asks of me and I will bear much fruit for him. We don't tend to see the investment, I don't think. We don't set our sights on the returns. We look only at the cost, the dying part. We see the bits we don't like and they seem to far outweigh what we perceive are the returns. Like any investment, we kind of weigh it up a bit, don't we? The risk versus the return. Although in this, there are no spreadsheets adding up clear black and white numbers with a bottom line telling you that if you deny yourself, just once and die to yourself, then definitely 110 people will come to Christ through your self-denial. There's no spreadsheet giving us those guaranteed returns, guaranteed numbers. And if you could have that calculated for you, 
and you knew that 110 people would come to Christ if you could deny yourself and do what God wanted you to do, would you do that? And already some of us are probably thinking it probably depends on the cost. Already we're weighing up the cost versus the investment return, what we put in, what is going to come back and what we have to give up. Is it worth giving that up so that we get those returns? Even if it's 110 people coming to Christ, we still weigh up the cost. Subconsciously we weigh up whether the cost is worth the return labelled by Jesus as much and we can kind of see that cost can't we we can taste it, feel it, we fear it we all know about the cost of the things that we have to give up for Jesus or so we think anyway but the returns are not so clear are they they're a bit unknown and they rely on God working through us and the investment is often a long term game and you'll have to put in and put in and put in over and over again before anything comes back to you sounds a bit selfish doesn't it we think it's got to come back to us let's read from John 12 making sure that that's there whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life and from Luke 14 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's about loving God, isn't it? And being obedient, not for our own sake, but for the glory of God and for the sake of all those who don't know Jesus yet. Jesus used the words, hates his life in this world for a reason. Hates, meaning to detest, to love less or esteem less. And Luke 14 says the same thing. There's a real theme of nothing being as important to Je- nothing being as important as being obedient to Jesus, loving God first, and over and above all our def- affections and delights here on this earth, seeking God with all that we are first. And in Psalm 73, Asaph says, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you." And what about Jesus' parable about the man who found a treasure in a field? He sold everything that he had to buy that field so that he could have that treasure. And if you continue reading Luke 14, verses 25 to 33 are about the cost of discipleship. Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So at this point it's getting a little bit rough, isn't it? hating our lives, dying to self, renouncing all we have. They're really strong words and they're absolutes. There's no payment plan, there's no credit, there's no afterpay. Jesus makes statement after statement and he's quite crystal clear about what has to happen, what is required. And there's no real way to debate something that's absolute. You can't say, oh, excuse me, oh, sorry Jesus, just when you said renounce... 50% of all that I have does that mean I can do I have to give my donkey or can I give my pigeon there's none of that Jesus said all we don't get to choose we keep this or that or what we like we'll keep and what we don't like we'll give away you know like those things you give other people when your things are worn out and you think someone else might need it and you buy a new one for yourself there's none of that it's giving away all of it isn't it you have to give away the donkey and the pigeon 
And if you don't renounce all in your life, then you cannot be his disciple. That's what Jesus says, you cannot. And Jesus spoke with a real clarity, didn't he? He's not, he wasn't just messing about. I think part of the reason he spoke like that was because there were large crowds. Large crowds milling about him all the time, everywhere he went. And people follow things that are exciting, don't they? They come back again and again for that. If you think my preaching is boring, you won't come back again. That's the theme. Jesus, he did exciting things everywhere he went and people flocked to him to see what was going to happen next. There were healings and people being freed from demons. There was food that somehow fed everyone, no matter how many people were there. And Jesus stood up to the religious leaders of the day and often left that conversation with them having egg on their face. I think a lot of people in that day and age would have really enjoyed seeing that happen to a few of the religious leaders. Were all those people that crowded around Jesus, were they all his disciples? Did they even want to be a disciple? Or did they come for the bread, free food? Jesus wasn't trying to lure or entice or trick people into following him or being disciples. And if that's what he was doing, he really had a bad marketing guy behind the scenes. Not a good job in that sense. People came to him because he had truth and he had authority when he spoke it. He healed and he saved and his words were marvellous. Everyone wanted to see who he was and what he would do next. But Jesus didn't try to keep them there with smooth talking. He spoke straight down the line and made it crystal clear to everyone what was required to follow him. In John chapter 6, Jesus goes one step further. We read about Jesus speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum. Um, and in verses 66 and 68, Jesus said, uh, well, it goes on from what Jesus was saying. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Why is my question. Why did the people turn back and go away? Why do people leave a church? Why do people drop their Christianity and walk the opposite way? Often it's because of people in the church that people leave churches and people walk away from Christianity. Bad people are sense, in a sense doing bad things to other people when they should be loving them instead. In this case, Jesus had a hard teaching for these guys and they were offended by that because it didn't fit in with how they wanted it to go down, how they wanted it to happen. They wanted the good bits. They wanted to feel warm and fuzzy every time they hung out with Jesus. They wanted the healings and they wanted all those nice things to happen. They didn't want to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is what he was talking about. And he was speaking of his death on the cross, wasn't he? He wasn't actually talking about eating flesh and drinking blood because that's a bad thing. Don't do that. That's not good. Jesus' death would bring redemption of sin and therefore eternal life if his disciples could bear to believe in him as their saviour. He even said in verse 64, which we didn't read out, that there were some in that crowd who did not believe. But that was too much for them, wasn't it? 
it was okay while all the fun was happening and they're seeing good things happening and moving. But when the rubber hits the road, they turned their back and they didn't walk with him anymore. They couldn't bear to believe that Jesus, who was sitting there in front of them, was actually the Son of God. But Simon Peter, he had already calculated the cost and if you read the Bible enough, you'll see he's kind of a rash kind of individual anyway, but maybe he's more inclined to take more of a risk than other people, yeah? But he, he, maybe he didn't calculate it, but I'm thinking he probably had already thought about it a little bit. And even if he wasn't sure on what the returns were going to be, he had set his mind on following Jesus no matter what. He knew it was worth walking with Jesus, even if it was just to find out what happened. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In Simon Peter's mind, there was no other choice. There was nothing more important to him than the words of eternal life. And there was no one that he'd rather walk with than Jesus. He chose. He chose to walk with Jesus over and above everything else. He was a true disciple. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So if we go back to the wheat verses again, and move along a little bit further than that, Jesus follows on from the, from the hating life to gain life theme, and he talks about serving and following PJ's mentioned today and kind of links in a little bit trees serving and squirrels serving if anyone not just meaning the good people or the people that can do the task anyone literally anyone absolutely anyone can serve Jesus but what does it mean to serve Jesus Matthew 25 then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Aren't all these things serving Jesus? It's a pretty simple list, really. In the next verse, verse 37, the righteous reply to the king and they have no idea that they have even served the king. They have no idea that they gave him a drink. No idea that they gave him food. How did they serve Jesus without knowing that they served Jesus? I think they did these things for Jesus out of love and compassion for the people around them. They considered the people that were least in society and they helped them, they served them, they blessed them. And in doing those things, they unwittingly did them for Jesus at the same time. They served Jesus because out of love they did good deeds, practical good deeds that changed people's lives. And it stands to reason that if we serve Jesus, we must follow him. Otherwise, if we're not in the same spot, we can't give him a drink of water simply because he's not there to drink it. And where he is, there his servant will be also, which makes sense because if we follow him, then we're going to be where he is in the end. He'll get there first and then we'll arrive because he'll already be there because we followed him. That's what following is, isn't it? 
how else would we know how to get there? But the obvious question is, where is Jesus? Isn't he everywhere? Well, yes, he is because he's God. But when we think about serving him and we start looking at what God might want us to do, we start asking, well, where is he? Where do we have to follow him to so that we can serve him and serve these people? Lost where I was up to there. And when we think about serving him by showing love and compassion to the people that are downtrodden, the people that are poor, the people that are broken or needy, the people that just need an encouraging word, the people that are in prison, or when we welcome strangers into our home or to church and make them feel loved and welcome, Jesus is already in those places. And he's waiting there, waiting for us to follow and be in that place and serve him in those places. It's not really difficult to figure it out. And it's difficult only in the sense that We have to follow Jesus into places where good works are done without any hint of return for us and our effort. Gifts to people that cannot repay us. Jesus is already in those places and we don't have to find him. What we have to do is find how to deny ourselves so that we can get to those places and serve those people and serve Jesus without expecting anything in return. It's interesting that the verses in Matthew in those verses about the king saying to those on his right, to the ones on his left, the unrighteous, those people also say exactly the same thing as the righteous. They didn't know that he was thirsty. They didn't know that he needed a drink. But those people were classed as unrighteous because they didn't do the deeds that Jesus asked them to do. They didn't go and love people unconditionally. They didn't have the compassion for the outcasts and the criminals and the broken people of the world. They didn't deny themselves and give because of their love for Jesus. And in that sense, they never followed Jesus to where he was. They never made it to that point and they never gave and they never denied themselves. And then, when they meet the king, they are unrighteous because of that. If we want to serve Jesus, if we really want to serve him, we have to follow him to where he is. And when we get there, do we say, like Jesus said, now is my soul troubled? Because that's the point where the wheat falls and the wheat dies or turns back and walks away, if wheat could walk. Jesus served God his Father and he served him and in doing that followed him and followed him to the point of death. Even death on a cross, the Bible says. And I think the choice for Jesus was much harder at that point, wouldn't you think? It was no longer a cup of water or a free meal or giving someone bread. It was death, a painful death. But Jesus still chose to follow, to obey and to deny his earthly body everything it would have been screaming to get. Yep, still in the same spot. Good. Um, so that's that verse there. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. And when you get to that crunch point, that point of thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to go that far, that's kind of asking a bit much. What do you say? Do you say that your soul is troubled? Do you feel like there's something that you don't really want to give or let go of and that something's about to happen that you're not really comfortable with? And do you turn back? What could Jesus actually say about that hour? Could he ask his father to save him from the very thing that his father sent him to do? What if Jesus said, I quit? What if he had settled down and spent his time ministering to people that didn't want to kill him? Making sure that he played it safe and didn't rock the boat with the Jews. Definitely no healing on the Sabbath. Always making sure that the outside was polished clean so that everyone liked him. Maybe he would have won more people over if he walked that way. It would have been a much easier life on earth for Jesus, wouldn't it? If he'd done that. If he turned his back and didn't walk with his father anymore. All because it was too hard. And then after that, if we keep with the theme of the wheat dying and bearing much fruit, what kind of disciples would Jesus have taught if he had made those choices instead of being obedient to God? What would the church look like if Jesus, the Son of God, just made himself appealing to people instead of doing what he was supposed to do? Like Simon Peter saying, where else would we go? There was nothing better. For Jesus, the only option was obedience to the Father. For Simon Peter, the only option was to walk with Jesus. And I want to ask you, what is your only option? What do you choose? What is your end goal in walking with Jesus? Do you think about that each day? As you read the word and as you pray, as you spend time with God, what is your goal in doing that? Why do you do those things? Do you fix your eyes on God and say, Father, glorify your name? And then in faith, charge into whatever you've been led into. Are you a disciple? Really? Are you a grain of wheat falling to the ground? Or are you still clinging onto the chaff, begging not to be dropped on the ground so that you don't have to die? You know what happens to the chaff, don't you? You really don't want to hang on to that stuff. That's not a good end. This is the pointy end of the message. All this is words, words, words. But here at the end, we get to choose something, don't we? We get to take something on board or push it aside and ignore it. And it's kind of time now to determine what God has been saying to you through these words. What has the Holy Spirit been urging in your heart? It's time to ask God to search us and show us what we need to do. God's word says very clearly that we can bear much fruit, that we will bear much fruit. God's word says clearly that God will honour us if we serve Jesus. God's word clearly says that the king will invite us into eternal life if we've served Jesus by selflessly serving others. 
Can you only see the cost? Do you fear the cost? Stop seeing only the cost. That's, that's the word for today. Stop looking at what it costs. Look to the end goal. The fruits, the honour, the good things that will happen if we could just deny ourselves and be obedient to God. Think of the people around you each and every day. What if they had the joy and the peace of God in their hearts, in their lives? What would that look like in your day to see those people like that? What if they had the wisdom of, wisdom of God that he gives so freely? When you meet back again at work after the weekend, what do those people say about their weekend? How would that be different to now if they had God's wisdom? What impossible things will God do through you if you would just be obedient to him? and allow God to disciple you as he wants to. We don't do it for the returns. We do it for God because he is so great and he loves us so much and because he has saved us through Jesus. Unless the seed dies, it will be alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. So I just want to take a minute now um, and pause and pray every person, just you and God and ask God to reveal to you what, he, what does he want you to learn this morning. If you truly want to be his disciple, tell him that. Ask him how you can start or what's next. Tell him that you're willing to renounce all that you have, all that you are and that you want to walk with him. And if you're not ready to say that, tell him that you're not ready. Ask him to encourage you and strengthen you. He loves you. He knows you. He sees all of us right where we are. We're all in different seasons of our journeys and he wants to speak to every single one of us. So I'll just give you a minute to pray and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so loving towards us. Each and every day, God, so many blessings you give to us. And you have put within us if we believe in your Son, Jesus, you have put within us the Holy Spirit. God, what an amazing gift. And you have done all that before we even chose you, God. Because you love us. God, forgive us for looking at only the cost in serving you. Even in my week, God, I've been so tired preparing this sermon and things have come out of the blue, God, that just made it harder to put it all together. But how can I complain, God, when you are so great and you give the strength that I need to get through this week and to prepare these words for these people? It's a cost. And that cost, God, I am willing to take and bear and give over. And I wonder here, God, how many people are willing to give even that. God, when you ask us to speak aloud your name in front of people and the cost is ridicule, do we turn back 
do we ask you to save us, God, from that very thing that you command us to go and do? God, I pray that you would put within us a real desire just to be obedient to you because you are so great and because you love us so much. Help us, God, not to consider these earthly things as costs, but help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, our sovereign Lord, God of the universe, our creator. So God, as we go into this week, I pray that you would help us to set aside all the thinking about costs and what we have to give up and how hard things are and how complicated it is. Help us to forget all that, God, and just to fix our eyes upon you and to try our best to walk like Jesus. And God, I pray that we will see much fruit, that you will honour us as we are obedient, and that one day we will be received into your kingdom, God, in heaven. And we won't even remember the things that we've done for you because we did it out of love and it wasn't a cost for us. God, put that deep within our hearts today, I pray, that we will stop seeing the cost and that we will see you instead and walk in obedience to you so that we can do your will. Thank you, God, for this morning and I pray for each of us that you will give us a special special touch. Help us to remember that during this coming week, God, so that we can better serve you and bring you glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We pray you've enjoyed this message from Life Buddhist Church in Rainbow. For more information about our church, please go to our website at www.lifebuilderschurch.org.au. Until next time, God bless.